You know, if we look back through the history of mankind, we don't have to look very far before we come upon amazing testimonies of human courage. You know, think of the great Spartans, the 300, who stood their ground against the Persian army at Thermopylae, only a couple hundred years after the book of Daniel. We think about the great Byzantine warriors standing their ground in Constantinople as the Turkish Empire pounded on the walls for 53 days, making their last stand you know, for Christendom. Think about the Battle of the Alamo. You know, you, you walk through those walls, that little bee church, and you can kind of feel, man, I'm not a native Texan, but even I start to get a little goosebumps. Man, what courage and conviction we see throughout history. This Saturday marks another occasion of courage. German monk Martin Luther took up 95 statements that he intended just kind of for debate, theology, and church practice, nailed it to the church door in the German town of Wittenberg. Had no clue what that simple act would unleash, but three years later stood before a council of the great Holy Roman Emperor and stood. He said, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. These examples of, of courage and conviction are the stuff of Sunday school classes and hero books, the stuff of our imagination. What would we do if we were in their shoes? And this morning we're continuing in our book of Daniel uh, to see one that you probably are familiar with, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The conviction and courage they had that they would be willing to even go into a fiery furnace rather than be unfaithful to God. And this morning, I just kind of want to put it to you. This whole series is about being faithful in the fire. And maybe you sense it, I, I sure sense it, that it is difficult to be a faithful Christian today. Let's leave the cultural stuff alone. Let's talk about in our own hearts, all the pulls and pressures we feel to unfaithfulness. And this morning, as we look at their example, I want you to ask yourself a question. Will you be faithful in the fire? Will you make your last stand or will you compromise and give in? You know, last week we saw the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, had this amazing dream about a statue with a head of gold and then a torso of silver, legs of bronze, feet of iron. He had this whole different mixed materials statue in his dream. And sometimes dreams become reality. And in chapter 3, I think that's what we see. So let's, let's look there together at Daniel chapter 3. We kind of just jump right back into the action. Then it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
and the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, and bagpipes, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, first this morning, we jump into the action, and Daniel brings us to the scene of a wonderful public dedication ceremony. You almost can imagine all those dignitaries lined up with the big red ribbon and the golden scissors, ready to you know, celebrate the unveiling of this giant statue. You know, given the dream in chapter 2, it's hard not to see the implication that Nebuchadnezzar has sought to realize what he had only imagined in his dreams. You know, our imaginations run wild. We're not really told what the statue looks like. But, but my mind sees those great Egyptian statues with broken off noses and the big statues of Buddha in the jungles of Southeast Asia. That's what my mind sees. But then we're given these dimensions, and they're a little bit baffling. Uh, Daniel tells us it's 60 cubits tall by 6 cubits wide, and a cubit ranged in size in various places, but about 18 inches is one cubit. And so you, you get that uh, dimension to be 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. That's a lot of gold, probably gold-plated, I think, but, but still, that is a lot of gold, 90 feet tall. We're talking a 9-story building and 9 feet wide. You imagine, what could a statue of that proportion look like? I mean, all the commentators are torn over it. They think something like that would have been, they use this word, this is how it works in commentaries. A hundred years ago, somebody uses a word, and it ends up in every commentary since. But the word they use is grotesque. What a grotesque statue, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. And people try to figure out what that must have looked like, because it would have been long legs, long arms. It would have looked strange to be nine feet wide and 90 foot tall. Couldn't have been a person, could it? They say, well, maybe there's a pedestal. The pedestal takes up the majority of the height. But then at the top, there is a golden statue. Other people imagine a giant golden obelisk, like the Washington Monument reaching to the sky. Other people say maybe it's like a totem pole and faces are carved into it. My favorite, the, the city walls of Babylon were 270 feet tall. They thought maybe this statue was set into a little cubbyhole in the side of the statue so all these government officials spread out across the plain of Dura could look upon the wall of the city and see a 90-foot tall statue, maybe even turned on its side so you could see the side profile. But whatever the statue looked like, the implication is clear that the act of bowing down and worshiping this golden image was a symbolic gesture and pledge of everyone's undying, faithful loyalty to the king. 
And the Babylonian Chronicle tells us that 10 years after Nebuchadnezzar had taken over the throne, he thwarted an attempted rebellion and military coup. He deposed a bunch of his military rulers. He took his whole army on a tour of all his western provinces as kind of a show of force. We think that probably this dedication ceremony was another effort he made to cement his hold on an empire that he thought was crumbling. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll get all of my government officials to assemble on such a day, and I'll make them bow down to a golden image that represents my authority and kingship. And so we see it, all these satraps, every government official you can imagine, from the very highest of the high, the satraps, they're like the protectors of a specific area, all the way down to just justices and magistrates, people at the bottom of the rung. He assembles them all, given the Babylonians penchant for indigenous leadership and making certain peoples they conquered take over and, and rule their kingdoms. I mean, it's not surprising that when the herald stands up and proclaims the call to bow, he addresses them as peoples, nations, and languages. I mean, some people think this is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, another satanic ploy to assemble all the peoples of the earth and unite them under one idolatrous religion. And so peoples of all nations and language gathered. The prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 51 that the puppet king of Judah Zedekiah even made a trip to Babylon around this same time. And so maybe there among the crowd is the king of Judah himself, King Zedekiah, bowing before the idol. Do you have that picture in your mind? People great and small from all ends of the empire gathered together to express their unfailing loyalty to their king trumpets blast, there they are on their faces. But there are apparently some holdouts. Let's keep reading. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, Lear, trigon, horn, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews who move appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, while all these government officials from every corner of the empire bow their faces to the ground, just a few people notice that, hey, there's some people sticking out like a sore thumb here. These are the governors of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We read in chapter 2, after Daniel interpreted the dream, he asked Nebuchadnezzar to elevate them to a place of standing. And so he gave them the role as governors, the province of Babylon. And apparently for the 10 years or so that had followed that, you know, promotion, they'd found a way to coexist, to be faithful Jews while they were carrying out their responsibilities as governors of the province of Babylon. But just as during their training, they'd refused to eat food from the king's table, 
Apparently this day, as all the other governors and officials bowed their face to the ground, they'd drawn a line in the sand that they were not going to bow down. And well, you know that those jealous native Babylonians who'd been frustrated probably all along that these foreigners had been given such a prominent place in the empire had an opportunity to finally point them out to the king and say, hey, there's a mole among us. There's some imposters, people who don't fit the bill of what you're looking for in government officials. And so they pointed out their refusal to bow down to the image. And, and really, you think about what they said in verse 12, and it's a really amazing. They took this symbolic gesture of not bowing down to the king, and they identified three different sort of behaviors that weren't at play. I, I don't know if you saw that. I, I think the first one we see is insubordination. They say to the king, hey, king, there's some of these Jews, and these men pay no attention to you. They reject your authority. Who do they think they are to stand up to you, Nebuchadnezzar, and go against your command to bow before the golden image? They're insubordinate. Do something about it. It's not just insubordination. They are ideological nonconformists. They do not serve your gods. These guys are strange. All of us, we here see no problem bowing down to the gods that have so richly blessed your kingdom. Lord, we will do whatever you ask of us. We see that they are on your side. These guys have their own mind. They don't fit the mold. They don't conform to the ideology that you've given to us. They refuse to serve your gods. And worse than that, they have this irreverence towards this symbol of unity. They do not worship the golden image you've set up. Oh, it's clear. They have this better-than-us kind of attitude that while we're all doing our part to express the unity of the empire, people from every corner of the empire, here they are irreverently standing while we all bow. I mean, they refused to join in the symbol that was supposed to express the unity of the empire. So you have these three things. These Chaldeans show up and say, King, what are you going to do about these Jews? But behind the scenes, in their own hearts, in their own minds, there was actually something even deeper than all this. It wasn't about irreverence or ideological nonconformity or insubordination. They actually were operating on a different level altogether. So they were faithful Jews. They had at least gotten that much right. These, these Jews. And as Jews, they knew God's law. They knew what he required. They knew that his first command was, you shall have no other gods before me. And they knew that he followed that up with, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. Well, the Chaldeans interpreted their refusal to bow as some kind of political statement. But clearly, they were operating out of a desire to be faithful to God. And this morning, I want you to know, if you are going to be a person of courage and conviction, and you're going to make your stand to be faithful for God, you're going to have to recognize the pool of idolatry in your own life. That faithfulness is costly. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew full well what their decision to stay standing was going to cost them. 
They knew that they were going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And you've got to believe that even if in their heart of hearts they always intended to be faithful to Yahweh as the one true God, they felt the pull to bend their knees, even if it was just for appearance's sake. So in the ancient world, these kind of public displays of loyalty to the king and his gods were prevalent everywhere. The early Christians even had to deal with it in Rome, where they were asked to burn incense to the emperor and say, Caesar is Lord. Refusal to go along with these public religious displays meant that you were opening yourself up to accusations of sedition and treason. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what he'd handled, didn't know what he was facing. These men had recognized what idolatry meant, and they were willing to stand regardless of the cost. Are you? Are you willing to be faithful regardless of the cost? Like these Judeans, I, I think a life of faithfulness today is definitely going to cost you. I mean, you're probably, and I say this knowing full well that 2020 being what it is, you never can really fully anticipate the future. But you're probably not going to face accusing stares for refusing to bow down to a giant obelisk set up in Longer Park. Now, that's probably not what you and I are facing. Even in 2020, idolatry looks a lot different than that. Now, we're prone to bow down to less obvious idols. You know what I mean? Like the idol of success, the idol of financial security, the idol of beauty, the idol of reputation. And what happens is, yeah, there's no blast of trumpets and bagpipes to say, hey, y'all better bow down to that idol. Instead, the pull is much more insidious. It's come from within us. That we start to adjust our behavior so that we don't risk our reputation at work. So we stay popular at school. We shy away from certain topics in our sermons and the way we approach church because, you know, we don't want to risk the potential of having 100 people here next week. You know, better not step on anybody's toes or something. Mike like that when y'all are quiet. That's right. But, you know, that is the pull of idolatry, not the blast of a trumpet, but the sort of thought process that says, hey, do I really have to stick my neck out here? You know, the pull that when we make peace with our sin at the cost of our holiness, that's the pull of idolatry. You know, you add to the fact, that's, that's the internal stuff, you added the fact that there's an unbelieving world out there that can't comprehend why Christians won't just get on caught up with the times. Why can't you just wear the pen? Just fly the flag. Say the slogan. Bend the knee. You start to see that the pull of idolatry comes gently at first. And maybe we say, you know, I'm just going to stay out of this one not going to stick my neck out. Or, yeah, yeah, I'll post it on the Facebook. That way people know that I'm on the right side. And slowly but surely, the conviction and courage that was present in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is totally foreign to who we are as God's people. So if you want to be faithful in the fire, you got to recognize the pull of idolatry in your own heart. See how it's working. Recognize the cost of faithfulness. 
And we'll get to the, what you're supposed to do after that. All right, so let's keep reading. Uh, we come next to the confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, right? Because he apparently hears his, Chalde his Chaldeans' accusation. And so, in a furious rage, this is verse 13, he commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made. Well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, spoiler alert. That's not going to be turning out too good for him. All right, but let's keep reading. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Now, I think it's interesting. You know, it tells you something a little bit about what God is doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. You know, one way to think about the first half of the book of Daniel is that it's really all about Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we're going to see that kind of come to its fullest realization next week in chapter 4. But you think about what God is doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he actually gave these Judean governors another chance. And he wasn't willing to just simply execute them on the accusation from the Chaldeans. Apparently he was aware enough about the intra-empirical politics to know that they were always looking for opportunities to throw their colleagues under the bus so that they could go up the next rung on the ladder. And so he brings these guys in and he gives them another chance. He says, hey, listen, maybe there's some miscommunication. Maybe the wires got crossed. Maybe you guys are confused about what I'm asking you to do here. So I want to give you one more chance, your own personal little worship time. They're not in front of multitudes. They're just there in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, guys, I know you don't want to make a public display of your idolatry, but maybe here just among a smaller group, just stays between us, you'd be willing to bow down before the image. There's something there. Doesn't matter how many people are watching, does it? Faithfulness is faithfulness is faithfulness. God's after faithfulness. So Nebuchadnezzar gave him another chance, and he strictly warned him. He said, if you refuse even among this small group to bow before the image, then you're going to get thrown into the fiery furnace, and nobody can save you. None of your friends, not even your God. And you think about it from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, and you, you must understand where he's coming from. I mean, he is a polytheist, has his own personal god, uh, Marduk, also known as Bel. He believes that his god is on his side and has blessed him beyond anything anybody could ever imagine. That in every kingdom where he has gone to war, he's won. Evidence, surely, that God is blessing him. His god is blessing him. Even when he came to Judah, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, he walked right into the city marched up to this magnificent temple that Solomon had built. And he left with all the golden 
vessels from it. You know, in his mind, his God had won. He was on the right side. God had blessed him. His God had blessed him. He'd already demonstrated to the whole world that nobody and no God could stand against the great Nebuchadnezzar. So surely he had everything on his side. At this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have to bend their knee. But you get what they said. Oh, it is amazing. Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand. Oh, we've seen this over and over in this series. I can be faithful in the fire because I know God's establishing a kingdom that never ends. I know that God's purpose for human history will prevail no matter what my present circumstances tell me. That there is a bigger reality than the Babylonian Empire. There is a greater king above all kings than King Nebuchadnezzar. I know that while this person in front of me seems to be the object of my war, my battle's not with flesh and blood. My God is already fighting. We don't have to answer you in this matter, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have to prove our God. We know that he is able to deliver us out of your hands. That's powerful. That's the kind of thing you put on a t-shirt, get on a tattoo. Our God is able to save us. The next part, okay, kind of throws us for a loop. But if not, you get what they mean. Our God will save us out of your hand. Our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, Nebuchadnezzar, we will never serve your gods or worship the golden image you've set up. That's courage. That's conviction. That's looking the firing squad in the eyes, saying, bring it. And so I think this morning, if you want to understand where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found their courage, their conviction, to look the king in the face and tell him, listen, we trust in God to the point that even if he doesn't deliver us from your hands, we're willing to get burned up in the fire. You've got to see what comes next. Not just recognizing the pull of idolatry, but resisting the pull of idolatry by knowing and trusting God. See, they knew God. No qualms about it. They didn't need an image, a golden obelisk, to make him real to them. They had built their life on the reality of God. They knew his promise made through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. They built their life on the reality of God, knowing his promises, and that he was faithful to every one of them. They'd seen his dealings with the people of Israel before. They knew he was able to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, that he was able to hand over the promised land to them through the man Joshua, that he was able to establish a kingdom through David that would have no end. They knew who God was, and they trusted him. You know, this morning we're likely to look at their lives and, and be, you know, amazed by their courage. 
like the men of the Alamo and of Constantinople, the great Spartans. This is Sparta. We measure ourselves against them. You know, would I be willing to do what they did? Would I be willing to look a king in the face and say, hey, I know God's able to save me, but if he decides he doesn't want to, I'm okay with dying in the fire. What, what is a little bit of bending the knee and compromise if it's just a small group anyway? Isn't it better to go on living and do great things for the Lord? But I want you to know that it's not anything in them that enabled them to have this kind of courage, to stay faithful. It was the object of their faith. You know, they resisted the pull of idolatry because they knew and trusted God. He was not an abstract concept that existed somewhere in the universe and might care about people generally, but has no real concern for anyone in particular. That wasn't the God they were working with. They knew that God cared for them intimately and personably. They knew what he'd told Joshua. Joshua 1.9, be strong, courageous, don't be frightened, and don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They're taking it to heart. They knew David's prayer. Lord, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. They knew before the fact what Paul says in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. They believed that. They knew God, and they trusted Him. And their example lit a fire for the whole world. And you think about what the author of the letter to the Hebrews says at the very end of the great hall of faith. He starts just describing people, groups of people, the, the people who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, that's Daniel chapter 6, and quenched the power of fire, Daniel chapter 3, who escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. You know, no great hero of the faith ever did that on their own. They weren't super saints, specially called, given some kind of innate ability and courage. They were people who had faith in God. And this morning, you want to be faithful in the fire? You want to resist the pull of idolatry that whispers in your ear and says a little compromise here and there is not going to hurt anybody? You're going to have to trust God. The cost is too great to try to make it on your own and suck it up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rely on your own strength. You've got to know God and trust Him. And so like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we need to every day pursue a deeper knowledge and greater trust in God. Y'all heard that? Every day. Because their faith and trust was not in vain. Let's keep reading to see where after they reject you know, Nebuchadnezzar's offer, he decides he's going to heat the, fire, the furnace up seven times hotter than normal, so hot that the soldiers who are given the task of throwing them in are burned up themselves before they even get to the mouth of the furnace. So they enter into the fire. They're thrown in. And Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. This is verse uh, 24. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, true, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, 
walking in the midst of the fire. And they're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there's no other God who's able to rescue in this way. What an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. I mean, as soon as these Judean men were thrown into the furnace, God showed up. And Nebuchadnezzar looking in there, I mean, it's actually, we think like furnace, and I don't know what your mind conjures up, but I think of like a pizza oven, you know, a little brick pizza oven, delicious crust comes out of it. It's wonderful and great. And that's what my mind sees. But these furnaces were actually pretty amazing. Um, in Babylon, they didn't really have strong rocks for building, and so they relied on bricks. And they built these giant brick firing kilns in the shape of upside down um, beehives. And so they had a hole at the top that creates this updraft so that the furnace gets incredibly hot. And so Nebuchadnezzar has undoubtedly, we have evidence in the ancient world that burning people in furnaces was a common form of execution. I don't find it difficult to believe that Nebuchadnezzar had seen how these things worked. He knew what this was all about. He knew that the normal heat of a furnace would burn a body up pretty quick. A furnace seven times as hot that's dangerous for even the people on the outside was sure not to leave any part of their bodies unsinged. And so you can imagine that as soon as he throws them in, he expects them to ignite, burn up. The screams would have been terrible. The stench. But what he sees are men walking around inside the fire, not bound up like they were, laying on their sides, burning up, walking around and completely untouched and unharmed by the fire. The thing that gets me is the appearance of the fourth man. You know, commentators, again, try to answer the question, who is this? Later in the book of Daniel, we're going to see that the archangel Gabriel makes an appearance over and over and over. And so some people see the continuity in that, that maybe this fourth man is the archangel Gabriel. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar definitely thought it was an angel. He called him a son of the gods. The King James Version says, the son of God, one looking like the son of God. And, and I actually believe that's close to the mark. The, the Bible's full of examples of what we call Christophanies, appearances of Christ that came before his incarnation. Oftentimes he's appearing as the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord. In Joshua 5, as the people of Israel get ready to really undergo their first real test to see if God is with them in their conquest of the promised land. Joshua is sitting in the hills surrounding Jericho, looking down on the city and plotting their attack. He stands up and sees a man 
with a sword drone. And it's crazy because that is a serious threat to anybody. If you're sitting down and you turn around, there's a guy with a sword drawn, you think he's about to take your head. So he asked the question everybody would ask. Whose side are you on? Our side or their side? He said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. I fight for him. And in each of these appearances, whether it's an angel, just some messenger sent from God, or whether it is the Son of God come before his incarnation in the form of an angel, it's obvious what's meant to be conveyed. That God is with them. God himself is with them. That he hadn't left them to go through the fire on their own. He hadn't abandoned them. But he was right there with them, protecting them and sustaining them. Even the pagan emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, had to acknowledge after the fact that Shadrach and Meshach's God isn't impotent after all, that he is the most high God, the greatest God, so great that he didn't want to risk bringing his displeasure on the empire, and so he said, nobody ever better say anything negative about this God or we're going to tear them limb from limb and destroy their house. Nebuchadnezzar had a realization of who God is. But there's an important thing that I want you to see. Even though Nebuchadnezzar saw this fourth man and recognized that God was with them, when he made his public declaration, he still called him the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was still their God and not his God. And this morning, that's the most important thing for you to take away from this story. Yeah, you've got to recognize the pull of idolatry in your own heart. You know, the, the cost of faithfulness is great, and so you will be tempted to compromise and fold under pressure. You need to resist the pull of idolatry by growing every day in your knowledge and trust of God. But all of that is for a purpose. That's responding to God with a life of faithfulness. So Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing God's hand in his life. Next week, that's going to come to a climax when God humbles him in a really dramatic way. The whole point of this thing is for God to glorify himself, to prove that he is strong, that he's the Most High God, to point out the fact that until Nebuchadnezzar bows his knee before the one true God, he's always on the wrong side. He's the unfaithful one. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the ones who are living their life in faithfulness. I wonder this morning, where are you? Are you responding to God in a life of faithfulness? You know, as I think about it, there are a few different ways that someone in this room might need to respond to God today. You know, obviously, there are some of us who know God, the one true God, the God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus, who came and lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death that we've already celebrated today. We know him. We know that he is worthy of single-minded devotion and love, to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And yet, due to various factors, whether it's the pull of idolatry in our own heart, the the whispers of how good life would be if we could just get a little bit more or if we could be accepted by the people that matter to us 
And we've bowed our knees to idols. We've been unfaithful. We've ignored the pull of idolatry because the cost was too high. And this morning, we need to respond to God with a renewed commitment to faithfulness, to recognize in this story an example to follow, to find our courage, not within ourselves and in our experiences or our strength, but to renew our focus on God, to believe Him when He says, Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the world. But I will never leave you or forsake you. That no matter how bad life seems, no matter how hurt you feel, no matter how severe the trials are you face, with Paul we could say the sufferings of this present time aren't worth being compared to the glory that's ready to be revealed. This morning, for you to respond to a life of faithfulness means to repent of your sin of idolatry and renew yourself to a life of faithfulness before the Lord. But there's another person in this room, a person like Nebuchadnezzar, who, as we've read through this story, you kind of thought this is all kind of far-fetched. You know, this doesn't happen. A 90-foot golden statue, really? Is this what we're talking about today? Really, three men in a furnace, an angel coming out unsinged, no smoke on their clothes. This is obviously a fairy tale, isn't it? But as I've been preaching this sermon, reading this passage, you've started to wonder if maybe the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is real. Maybe the courage they had wasn't misplaced, they just had a martyr complex. Maybe they were right. Maybe there is a great God. A God who is deserving of all your praise. Maybe today you need to commit for the very first time to living for Him. You see, this Jesus is important in this whole story. One of the gospel writers tells us that as He was breathing His last on the cross, going through the fires like you and I could never imagine, Experiencing a depth of suffering that no other human being has ever known. He didn't get to experience the warm fuzzies of the nearness of God. You know, the people who mocked him, who watched him die, said, hey, if he's the Son of God, let God save him now. And as he was breathing his last, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'll tell you why God forsook him. Why he allowed his only begotten son to suffer through fires like that. So you didn't have to. So you'd never have to know a fire worse than a fiery furnace. So that you could give up being afraid of those who can't hurt you eternally. Those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. But rather you'd live your life in fear and respect and worship the God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus experienced total alienation in that moment. So you don't have to. So you can know God. So that you can come boldly into His presence to know Him as a Father. To know the nearness of His Spirit who is given to you day by day to make the presence of God real in your life.
And for you to respond to this story today in faithfulness means that you bow your knee before Him. And the Scriptures tell us that everybody will. All peoples, nations, and language, they won't gather on the plain of Babylon. They'll gather before the throne of Jesus. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that He is Lord. This morning, you need to do that. You need to bow your knee before the Lord Jesus and give your life to Him. Why won't you? Why? All the other idols in your life, all the other things that promise happiness, security, personal well-being, are stupid. Prophet Isaiah makes a mockery of them. He says, you go out into the forest and you find a wonderful looking tree. You chop it down. You bring it back to your house and you split it out. And some of the wood you take and you put into your fireplace so you can bake bread on top of it. You sit by the warmth of the fire and you eat your bread and say, this tree is great. But then with another piece of that tree, you sit down and you carve an idol. You sit it up on your mantle. And as you eat your bread and as you warm yourself by the fire, you offer praises to your idol. How foolish we are. The things that we think will bring us happiness and pleasure never do. They don't hear our prayers. They don't see our need. They can't do anything to save us. But God can. And so this morning, to respond to Jesus means to give your life to Him to bow your knee before Him. The Bible says today is the day. Now is the time. No blast of trumpets, no bagpipes involved. But if you hear the voice of the Lord, don't harden your heart against Him, but respond in faithfulness. The last invitation, the last response comes down to the fact that there are three men in the fire. They're there together. You know, we don't talk about Shadrach by himself. We don't talk about Meshach by himself. We don't talk about Abednego by himself. We talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the truth that I've discovered about a life of faithfulness. That if it's up to me by myself to find the courage to stay standing when everybody else kneels, I'm going to kneel. But when I have brothers who are beside me, who are encouraging me, who are praying for me, who are lifting me up, there's nothing I can't do. I know God's with me, of course. But when I see His people surrounding me and encouraging me, I find strength that I never knew I had. And this morning, you've been trying to live your life of faithfulness alone. On your own, just you and Jesus. And today, you need to commit to surrounding yourself with people who are going to encourage you to live a life of faithfulness. That may mean getting involved in a Sunday school class at our church. It may mean joining our church. I don't know. But... Maybe it just means finding a Christian friend, pouring out your heart, 
saying, this is what I'm going through. These are the pressures I'm facing. This is the temptation I feel. Will you pray for me and encourage me? And I promise you, you'll be able to stand. You'll find courage and conviction that you never knew you had. And you will respond to God in the life of faithfulness. Listen, after our service, we're going to have some of the members of our prayer team available for you in our fellowship hall, just right through these doors. And if you need somebody to pray for you, to stand with you, they're there for that. If I can encourage you, if I can pray for you, let me know. I want to stand with you, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because I want to see God work in your life. Can I pray for you now?